So, all right, Exodus, Exodus 11. Exodus has been great. I mean, I hope you've been here throughout the summer. If you haven't, you're welcome to catch up online, the apps, but it's been a really cool uh, series. And throughout these plagues and really the story of Exodus, we have seen God do some incredible things and really he's showing his character and his nature to us, but not just to us. He's showing it to his people, the Israelites. He's showing it to uh, the nation of Egypt. He's showing it to all nations. A matter of fact, I was reading my quiet time. It was either this morning or yesterday morning uh, where Joshua is uh, going throughout the land and he's having kings come to him say, hey, don't kill us. We've seen what God has done in Egypt. We've heard what God has done in Egypt and we want nothing to do with that, right? And so, so he is, uh, God is uh, one of his goals he's accomplishing is the, the renown of his name spreading throughout the nations and sovereignly by his hand spreading to us through the blessing that is his scripture that we have in our hands or on your mobile devices or whatever. And so from Israel to Egypt to the nations to, to the generations through the scripture, God is showing who he is, what, who his character is, what his nature is. He's telling us about himself. And we've seen that throughout. And we've seen some big themes. And we're going to talk about some of those themes again this morning. Uh, we're also going to see some very practical take-home application pieces that we're going to be able to see from Pharaoh, Egypt, Moses, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and, and I hope you've enjoyed this Exodus series. And that's kind of where, we're, where we are heading. And... and uh, Throughout this, throughout this deal, it's important, it's important. Again, I, I want to always be casting the vision of what God has called us to. Specifically for us, uh, God, God has moved in us in such a way that he has uh, uh, told us to take his name to the nations. Live sin, take his name to the nations. We see that being um, uh, given to us as an example throughout the, this story of the Exodus that Moses uh, and the people of Israel are doing, God is showing off in his plagues to take his name and his renown to all people groups. That is still our goal. That's still our responsibility as believers. God is saying, take to the nations my name and my renown. Show the nations who I am. One of the primary reasons that our nation is in the state it's in is because they, we don't see God as God. We don't worship him as God. We worship him as something lower than what he really is in a lot of ways. Specifically in our country, the percentage of people that claim to be Christians are higher than they really are. If we, if we want to talk uh, real di- uh, demographics of people that love Jesus, are a part of a Bible-believing churches, it's probably a generous number would probably be 15% of our country that are born again. I'm going to die for the gospel. Uh, give me Jesus. I want him consuming my life. 15% of our country. And that's probably super generous. There are plenty of people that are cultural Christians that will go to church. You know, they're priesters. They go to church Christmas and Easter. They'll, you know, they'll do some things like that. You know what I'm saying? That are, that are cultural Christians. And they begin to make up in their mind who they think God is. Now, one of the popular things of who God is, is like this old grandpa that, that sits on a rocking chair and hands out 
candy to all his kids in equal share, right? And, and that there's just some benevolent, universal uh, God that is going to just give treats to all mankind as if there is no standard. It's all just love. And, 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 and here we have in the Exodus story, God's showing a different piece of his nature, a different piece of his character, namely his wrath and his judgment. Namely, that he has a standard. And if that standard is not met, then consequences will be given for not meeting that standard. And so we see that all throughout this Exodus passage, he is revealing who he is to Moses, Israelites, Egypt, the nations, and to us. He's saying, this is who I am. Again, this is why it's important for us as the church to proclaim the nature and the character of God. Because there are plenty of people in our country that believe the default eternal destination for mankind is heaven. And that is not the nature and the character of God. Because he does not allow sin into his heaven. And so all sin will be punished, either upon the individual or it will have been taken upon Jesus in the cross. Therefore, his nature is to punish all sin. And for all men that are not under the cross, there will not be grace given. The only grace and mercy to be found is in submission to Christ and under the cross. There is no grace anywhere else for sin. Uh, and so we're going to see that throughout this passage. We're going to see uh, God separating again. We're going to see his discriminating nature, his judging nature. You're going to see that throughout this thing. And, and uh, we have to be a people that sit back and say, okay, if, if that is who God is, I want to worship God as God. Now, there are a lot of folks, and maybe some of you are uh, this individual who says God is irrelevant. He's outdated. He, he, he is not applicable to our culture today. He has no say in 2016. And to that, I would say, then you don't know the God of the Bible. Uh, and we're going to see throughout this passage how relevant and, and practical the application of the life of Moses and the plagues being poured out are to our lives today. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. So we've covered the uh, plagues 9 through 10. Today we're going to look at Moses. He's introducing uh, plague number 10. And in chapter 12, which we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks, it may take two, possibly three weeks to get through chapter 12 because it's that um, important to everything we believe in, in actuality. It's the Passover and all those kinds of things, all kinds of gospel implications in that. Uh, so that's where we're going. But today is the proclamation of the last plague is coming. So let's read, uh, and it's a short chapter today. We're going to get through the whole chapter, but let's read the first eight verses now. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
There shall be great cry, a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction, makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from the Pharaoh in hot anger. All right, so Moses, God tells Moses there's one more plague. And after this plague, Moses is not just going to let you go. He's going to run you out of town. He's going to chase you out of Egypt. And one of the dominant themes running throughout the plagues has been the sovereignty of God. We see that again playing out here. We see that God is not sitting back and saying, I think it's going to happen tonight. I think, uh, I think somewhere around the next couple of days that this is going to happen. No, God's saying very specifically at midnight, I'm going to kill all the firstborn. And specifically from Pharaoh down to the slave girl, there, there is no socioeconomic class that is going to be void from this judgment. And then not only that, but all the cattle, I'm going to kill the firstborn in Egypt. And so very specifically, he's telling them how and when he's going to do what he's doing. Again, reiterating to us the sovereignty of God. And it's not, he's not predicting the future. He governs it. He ordains it. He's not like, you know, uh, you know some uh, tarot card reader or some psychic down here. It's like, I'm going to tell you your future, right? And you go in and they're like, hey, let me read your palm, right? And I'm like, this is really, let me, let me wipe this off for you, right? And they start saying, well, it looks like to me you're going to have some good fortune in your future. Or if you're like single, you walk in there like, I think you're going to get married. A big tip for you, right? Here, here is a, a lie and a false, a prediction. It doesn't happen. Like, and, and I'll just say this, don't go to those things. Come to me. Give me your money and I'll tell you your future, okay? Uh, if you want to know what's going on in your future, give me your cash and I'll tell you, you know, I'll get, you, you're going to get sick, die, pay taxes, you know, and uh, yeah, so, so that's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you the future. I'm going to sit you down and say, give me your money. Titans will never win a Super Bowl. I'll, I'll tell you the future, right? See, here's God. He's saying, I'm not predicting the future. I'm telling you with absolute certainty what's going to happen. I'm telling you with finality, this is how it's going to play out because this is how I've governed it and ordained it to be. Uh, one commentator says, Moses was writing not to just help Israelites trust God as things happen to them, but to help them know that God is the, is the one making things happen. Let me say that again so you get it. Uh, God is not just with the Israelites uh, as things are happening to them. God is the one making things happen. This changes your theology drastically. So if you think when bad things happen that God is just a helpmate, he's just there to pat you on the back, to give you good encouragement, to get you through it, that God's never going to leave you. Those things are true. But in reality, they're not the whole truth. Because the whole truth is that there is nothing that happens over our life that God does not 
have his hand on and over and is sovereignly governing. Not, a, not, not one breath that you breathe, not one hair out of place, not anything that God uh, is a part of that is outside of his control. And so that changes our theology. He's not just a, oh, help me in this bad time. It's God, what are you doing through this? What, how are you using this to make me like Jesus? We claim the promises of Scripture that say, you work all things for the good of those who love you, so I love you. What is the good that you're working in me then? Because I trust the promises of your work. So it changes how we view God entirely. Uh, and it's also why you can look at the story of Joseph, that, that the reason the Israelites got to Egypt in the first place Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up getting falsely accused, put in prison. Uh, he, uh, through God, interprets some dreams of Pharaoh, gets elevated to the second uh, man in power of, of Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world at the time. And then his brothers come looking for food. And Joseph looks over his brothers, and it would have been completely just for him to say, kill them all. They deserved it. They had done wrong, terrible, despicable things. But he didn't. You know what he said? He said, what you, my brothers, meant for evil, God meant for good. So though the brothers should have been held accountable, they were absolutely in the wrong, God was still sovereign over it and meant those things for his purposes, namely saving Egypt and the Israelites from famine. Namely, uh, uh, calling his people into 400 years of slavery, which he's going to use to bring them through the exodus so he can show off his power. All these things are working in God's sovereign hand. It's not out of his control. And so here we have Moses. He hasn't spoken to the Israelites since he began the plagues, which I thought was kind of interesting. And so now he said, hey, go tell the people, go tell my people, get their passports ready, pack their bags, load up their donkeys. We're about to get out of town. And so we're, we're about to hit the road. And so you need to go tell them to get ready. So it's the first time Moses has, has gotten back with the people uh, since the initial, uh, the initial plagues. And then if, if you notice, it says, I think this is fascinating and, and again, a testimony to God's sovereignty is that the Israelites didn't just leave Egypt. They plundered Egypt. It says, this is nuts. If you've read this, if you read this and you're like, how did that even happen? You have the Israelites saying to the Egyptians, hey, give us your gold and silver jewelry. And the Egyptian goes, okay, here it is. That is abnormal. I don't know. I mean, maybe you're reading the scripture. Oh, okay, okay. No, that's weird, right? You don't just, and, and here it says that they plundered the Egyptians. You don't typically plunder someone until after they've been defeated, right? So here they are plundering before they're out of the town, before they have, before God has said, all right, I'm done with them. I've killed them all. No, they plundered. They took all their stuff while everybody's still like, all right, I'll give you my stuff. That sounds like a good idea, right? It's a great idea. I'm here. Here's my stuff. So here you have a, a lot of things going on. One, the sovereignty of God. Two, uh, Moses uh, and his character and integrity uh, doing some things in Egypt. God's showing off these plagues. Egyptians beginning to believe that if what God says is true. And so if God says, hey, I want you to ask your neighbor for gold and silver, the Egyptians are saying, all right, if your God says it, here it is. So here you have 
people outside of the faith beginning to see God moving and working and true to his word and saying, if that's what God says, I will do what he tells me to do. And so they, they plundered this nation and, uh, and then walk out with all their stuff. And it's uh, a testimony to, the, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that he made to Abraham 400 years before. Uh, and I want to read it to you. Genesis 15, 13 through 14 says, this is to Abram before he changed his name to Abraham. Same man says, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So here's God fulfilling a, uh, a prophecy that he has told them 400 years before. Uh, Ligon Duncan, a pastor uh, I, I like to learn from and listen to, he makes the point too for practical application for us in that uh, these people took the possessions from Egypt, the gold and the silver from Egypt, and they used them for two different purposes. One, they used it for good purposes, and one, they used it for bad purposes. The good purpose, they built the tabernacle out of the things they plundered from Egypt. But you know what else they built out of the things they plundered from Egypt? A golden calf, an idol. Again, reiterating to us, stuff is just stuff. It's not good or bad. It's indifferent. It, it has no moral uh, uh, compass in and of itself. It is just stuff. What we do with our stuff makes it holy or makes it unholy. What we do with our stuff makes it uh, pleasing to God or makes it a stench in his, in his sight. What we do with stuff, what we do with our money. Are going to use your money for God-honoring things, or are you going to use it for your selfish ambition or, or, or sin? Uh, sex. Are you going to use sex the way God intended sex to be used within his boundaries? Because within his boundaries, it's holy, it's righteous, it's pure, and it's worship to him. Outside of its boundaries, it is sinful and, and, and unholy and and not pleasing to him. So when you talk about adultery, you talk about sex outside of marriage, those types of things, it, it is taking a gift of God and using it for unholy things. Everything God gives us, we can use for either good or either holy or unholy purposes. Everything uh, he gives us. And we see that God gave them possessions and they used them for, un, for holy and unholy purposes. And so that's a, a great application for us as we uh, uh, walk out of here today. Another thing, another thing I want you to know, you see again God's sovereignty uh, throughout this whole story, uh, uh, but you also see Moses, uh, again, he's 80 years old, right? He's practically, he's beginning his ministry at 80 years old. I've said this before, I'll say it again. A lot of times we view Moses as this young, strapping, buff dude wearing a loincloth, and that's it, right? And he's like, let my people go, like strapping, let them go, or I'm going to like uh, Chuck Norris kick you in the forehead, you know, stuff like that. But he was old. He was 80 years old. He's probably leaned up on a donkey, like just trying to make it down the road. And, and so here's this old fella, and God is beginning to use him at 80 years old, beginning, really beginning to use him. And he's going to carry on ministry for the next 40 years. And in that time, he's going to have 
seeing God do plagues, split red seas. He's going to see water come out of rocks, manna come down from heaven. He, he's he's going to, God give him commandments and the law. He's going to have a incredible ministry from the time he's 80 to 120. Again, practical, practical application for us. God's not done with you until you're dead. So whether you're 20 or whether you're 60 or whether you're 96, it doesn't matter. If you have breath in your lungs, God has purpose for your life. And so for the believer, retirement is not, <clears throat> is not in our vocabulary. Now, we may retire from a job. We may retire from MTSU. We may retire from Bridgestone or Nissan or wherever we work. We may retire from our job, but our main purpose, our gospel purpose, we never retire from. We never retire from. <clears throat> so retirement should not be a part of our vocabulary. We, we you know, if you're going to snow, and it's fine if you're going to snowbird, if you're going to snowbird, right, snowbird for Jesus, right? Do whatever, whatever that is you do for the glory of God, right? Like, like don't just get amped up because you get to go to South Florida and live in a mobile home when it's cold up here in Tennessee, but be amped up about sharing Christ, right? Be amped up about an eternal destination that is way better than some mobile home in South Florida, Right? So we have a greater purpose to live for, even at the end of our days. And we see that in Moses' life. <clears throat> Another thing about, about Moses, I, I want to say, uh, uh, notice again, he had a speech issue. He was, he, was not he, he, he was not confident in his ability. And so here's God using a man not confident in his ability. Hello, all of us. God using us in our weaknesses. Imagine that. Another thing you see, he didn't have the moral authority. He had killed a man. And God continued to use him. God almost killed him for not circumcising his son, but then he forgave him and then used him. So again, if you've messed up in your past, welcome to the club. God can still use you. God can still move in your life. And I love, towards the end of, uh, or when he's 80, not the end, it's like, he's still got a third of the way to go. But you see throughout the scriptures, Moses' character and his integrity being shown throughout the scriptures. The Egyptians respected him. Now, they probably didn't like him because he's bringing frogs and crap. Right? So he's probably like, dude, stop. But they respected him. Why? Because he had high character, high integrity. He was preaching the word of God. He was standing on what God had told him to do. I think this is true for us. It's definitely true for me and church, anybody who is in leadership of the church that uh, the, seeking the aim of people respecting you is more important than, than seeking people to like you. Because if I saw everyone to like me, that means probably my doctrine's going to toss to and fro on every wave of, 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 of thought that comes along. And I can't please everybody. So if my aim is to please everybody, A, I'm going to burn out. B, I'm not going to be able to do it. Three, uh, that's not high character integrity and that's not God honoring. But if I seek to, to, to earn your respect by living a godly life, by speaking truth with compassion, by having character. These are the types of things that I think God honors and moves through. Uh, it, and, and I think it plays out on your level uh, as far as your, your everyday living. Like if you know a believer is in sin and you have a couple of options here. Hey, first of all, let me preface it. Remove the plank from your own eye, right? 
pray, fast, repent of your own sin before confronting. But then when God says to confront a sin, you approach it and you come to him and you got two options. One, you can either tell him in love, dude, here's a sin. It's a blind spot for you. Watch out. Now, he's probably not going to like you when you do that. Now, I don't like it when people do that to me. Right? You don't either. When someone points out your sin, you immediately want to hit them with a baseball bat, right? You're like, who are you? But it's for my good, it's for for their good, for your good, that that sin is pointed out, that it's fought, that, that it's repented of, right? Or your options are to say nothing. Maybe it'll all work out. Maybe God will do something. I'm just I'm just gonna sit back and say nothing. In reality, you are complicit along with that sin because you see it. Your brother can't see it. You see it, but you refuse to speak truth to him. And so that's seeking the approval of man, not the approval of God, not walking in character and integrity, not trying to honor God with the entirety of your life. Um, let's move on. Maybe you think, Maybe you think uh, that this is just harsh. All this punishment is harsh. Like Moses comes up, he proclaims the last plague, kind of a drop the mic kind of deal. I'm about to destroy your firstborn. I'm out of here. And so you're thinking, why? that's kind of harsh. Like, okay, why is he, it's Pharaoh's hard heart. Why is he taking it out on everybody else? It's Pharaoh's hard heart, the poor cattle, right? Why is he taking it out on the cows, right? What's this deal? There's a couple of things we can learn from here. One, again, our sin never just affects us. You might think it's secret. You might think it's safe. You might think it's not bothering anyone else. You are deceived. Our sin affects everyone around us, and usually the ones we love most, the most. And so your sin doesn't just affect you. If you commit adultery, it's going to affect your kids. If you are selfish, it's going to affect your family. It's going to affect people around you. If you all these things. It's going to have great effect on everyone around you. Secondly, you need to understand that there's no innocent people. Remember that these Egyptians were complicit in the slavery of the Jews. Why is he taking out on the, the Egyptians? Well, because they were enslaving them for 400 years. That's why. They treated them harshly. They were a part of the crowd. They didn't speak up against injustice. They, can't, they either took a, a back burner toward it, let it just happen, or they even benefited from it. They're not innocent. Just like none of us are innocent, God could take out his wrath on all of us and it would be just and deserved. So there's no innocent people. Thirdly, you can see uh, God doing his thing where he is, uh, part of his nature is discriminating and it is judgmental in that he separates the Egyptians from his children. Well, aren't we all God's children? No, we're not all God's children. We're all God's creation. We're all made in God's image. But the scripture says, Jesus calls some people fathers of the devil. And it also says, you have been given the right to be called children of God. Why? Because of Christ. If you are in Christ, you have been given the right to be called children of God. So no, we're not all God's children. So the only way you can be a child of God is to be engrafted into the to be grafted into the cross. And this is what happens. When you become a believer, you have God's people all throughout the generations. Then Christ comes. And what the scriptures say is that when you come to Christ and you bow your knee to him, that he grafts you into the family of God. He, 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 he merges you in with his promised and, and, and special people. So we get 
thankful. I'm not a Jew. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't, I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I wasn't Israel, but now because I'm in Christ, we are then true Israel. We're grafted in and we get all the promises that he has given to Abraham and his people. So the blessings of being God's people and namely escaping final judgment, that blessing is going to fall upon his children. And all those who are not his children will experience the wrath of God. So in the end, he's going to do a separation of Egypt and Goshen again. Where it's his, those who have rebelled against him, those who are not his children, those who are Egypt, those who are their own God and worship false gods, and those who are his children. People who have fallen upon the cross and trusted in Jesus for their salvation. He will discriminate that way again. He will. And so we see that throughout the scripture here is uh, he's working through all of these things. I also thought it was fascinating about the dogs not barking. Um, so, I, I mean, you can just imagine in Egypt just absolute chaos, people screaming, wailing, and the dogs are silent. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we could take this a couple of ways. Uh, one, this could be God, again, smacking an Egyptian god in the mouth because the god Anubis, one of their main gods, had the body of a dog. So it could just be like, I'm smacking that joker down again. It could be a very literal thing in that uh, God says, I'm, I'm, dogs aren't going to bark. You're going to see them walking around. Chaos is going to be happening. They're just going to be like, what's up? Not barking right? Or it could be a figurative thing, just again showing God's sovereignty over him being in control over every single detail, uh, even the fact that there's not going to be uh, an animal or, or dog or anything that can come against me. Nothing can come against me. And so you see uh, that playing out. I thought that was kind of cool. So let's, uh, let's, let's finish out the passage here, 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. The people of Israel go out of his land. Again, uh, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but i got to mention it. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, um, again, expressing the sovereignty of God. I, I've got some numbers here. So in these, in these uh, passages, Moses refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart 19 times. 19 times it refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, three times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Six times it says that it was hardened, just a vague Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then 10 times that God hardened his heart, making it again clear to us that God is sovereign over the heart. He's sovereign over the heart. And I think, I think it's a testimony to us, and it should encourage us as believers that if you uh, want a heart change to happen in your own life or to happen in someone else's life, the primary person to talk to is God about it. He's the one sovereign over it. He's the one in control over it. There's no heart too hard that he can't break. There's no heart too far gone and too deep in sin that he can't reconcile and rescue. There's no heart that, that has completely been anti-God that he can't bring to their knees and say, I'm a Jesus lover. None. He is sovereign over every heart. So you think of the most God-hating person you know in your life, and God has the ability to step in and to bring them to himself. He can do it. In a moment, he can bring this entire nation to its knees 
With a word, he could speak over our nation and every knee would bow before him. He's sovereign over our heart. This is why we as believers should spend a good portion of our time crying out to God for him to move in our own hearts. I do this on a, not as often as I need to probably, but I pray, God, please let not my heart be hardened. Because my nature, my flesh, my sin is to be stubborn, to have a hard heart, to not show compassion. Compassion on the personality traits, compassion falls, I know this surprises you, but compassion falls very low for me. It's like, deep, it's like you know, I'm leader, you know, pa, you know, fun, details, compassion, right? It's like, okay, that doesn't surprise us. So I know my weakness, and so one of my primary prayers is, God, I, I, I would harden my heart to all things if it were not for you. So continue to soften my heart. I know my heart is in your hands. And I know that if you don't continue to soften my heart, that sin will take over and harden it. That will harden my heart. So I need you, sovereign God, to work in my own heart. Continue to make me compassionate towards people or issues or my own sin that I would be broken over it and not hard to it. This should be our constant prayer as believers, even before, even before we sit down, which is vitally important that we read the Bible so that the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures can be used of God to soften our heart. But even before we read the scriptures, let us not have the audacity to think, I can read any of this word and gain it in my own power. But that before we read the scriptures, and I'm guilty of doing this all the time, of not doing this, but that we would sit down before the scriptures and we'd say, God, without you speaking to me and showing me anything, this would just be words on a page. I will harden my heart and it would just be a bunch of facts and stories that have no life. So God, the sovereign over my heart, I need you to kill my sin, to open my eyes, and to open my heart to hear and to move on what your word says and what you would have me do. The Lord is sovereign over the heart. And for us as believers, we cry out to him to save our family, to save our neighbors, to save the nations, to save our children, because he's sovereign over the heart. He's sovereign over every heart. We see that throughout the scriptures ring true. Again, don't get your, don't get bit out of shape because God's sovereignty never violates our will. Pharaoh wanted to do everything that he did. So when it says God hardened his heart, he did, but that's exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. That's exactly the direction Pharaoh wanted to go. You look in plagues 1, 2, 4, 5, 7, and 8. God gave Pharaoh a chance to respond and repent and turn from his sin and to let his people go. And every time he didn't do it, every time, even if he had false humility and false repentance, he would say, okay, you're the true God. Forgive me of this sin and take away this plague. And as soon as the plague was gone, he walked right back into his hardened heart. 
Does this, this is a lot of people in our culture that when we hit hard times, God, get me out of this. And as soon as you get a job again, it's like, oh, I don't need God. God, work, 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 because my family's breaking up. I got this thing going on, this, uh, this tragedy. But, and then all things smooth out. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm good without God now. We do it too. We harden our hearts. We have to be a people that pray before God to say, do not let our hearts be hardened. Keep us in you. Keep us soft to the gospel truths. That's why we pray. That's why we pray for God to move. That's why we pray for him to absolutely take our hearts and to make it compassionate on the things that he's compassionate over and to hate the things that he hates, namely sin and injustice. Let's pray together. Father, you are our only hope. Our only hope personally, because God, without you, we would harden our heart. I know I would. I would, I would be a stubborn old cuss. <laughs> So I need you, God. I need you to make me a godly man. I pray that over this church, that you would be sovereign over the hearts in this place, that you would raise up godly men and women, people who are very aware of their own sin and very eager to repent and confess and turn to you. govern our heart in such a way that we honor you with our lives, that we consecrate our lives, and we try to fight sin with the gospel. We hate the things you hate, love the things you love, God. And I pray, Jesus, that you would save those who don't know you, that are far from you, the family member that we have in our life that just doesn't know you. Whether that be a father, a mother, or son, brother, sister. I pray you bring them to their knees, God, and save them. You are the sovereign over hearts. And there is no heart that you don't hold. And so my prayer is, God, that we would diligently cry out to you to save souls our family, our neighbors, the city, the nations. God, we need you. We need you. God, I pray that we would glean some things from the scriptures today. We would speak truth, show compassion, that we would preach the character and the nature of God who thinks you're just a big loving teddy bear with no standards. But there is a standard and that standard is perfection. And the only way for perfection is to be found in the cross, to be in Christ. Your scripture continues, says to be in Christ. Help us to preach that truth that our nation would come to be in Christ. Our Savior 
Jesus, the only one that can slay sin, the only one who can bring social issues, social sins, racism, murder, sex trafficking, idolatry, porn, sins, lying, selfishness, dishonoring of parents, sin, the only one that can bring it to its knees and kill it. And I pray you begin to do that in our life. Put your foot on the neck of our sin and cut off its head, Father. We love you, Jesus, and we need you. In your name we pray, amen.